0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 17th of May, 2018, on Monocle 24. Live from London, this is Midori House. I'm Daniel Beach on today's show.
1: One of America's great advantages is we have many allies. Our adversaries, China, Russia... Iran and the terrorist organizations have few. Rex goes
0: rogue. But was Donald Trump's former Secretary of State really taking aim at the president? Robin Lustig and Carlo Benura are here to discuss. Plus, if you thought House of Cards was far-fetched, just look at the state of politics in Malaysia. We'll also look at whether some global summits have reached their peak. And fancy a whiskey highball? We'll look at why supplies of habiki are drying up. That's ahead on Midori House, starting now. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the journalist and broadcaster Robin Lustig and Carlo Bonero, Senior Teaching Fellow in Southeast Asian Politics at SOAS. Welcome both to the program, gentlemen. First to the U.S. state of Virginia, where Donald Trump's former Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, took a rare step back into public life yesterday when he gave a commencement speech at the state's military institute. In remarks that clearly stand in contrast to his former boss, Tillerson warned of a growing crisis of ethics and integrity. In American democracy.
1: An essential tenet of a free society, a free people, is access to the truth. A government structure and a societal understanding that freedom to seek the truth is the very essence of freedom itself. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It is only by fierce defense of the truth and a common set of facts that we create the conditions for a democratic, free society comprised of richly diverse peoples, that those free people can explore and find solutions to the very challenges confronting a complex society of free people. If our leaders seek to conceal the truth or we as people become accepting of alternative realities that are no longer grounded in facts, Then we as american citizens are on a pathway to relinquishing our freedom this is the life of non-democratic societies comprised of people who are not free to seek the truth we know them well societies in russia china iran north korea you can complete the list
0: former secretary of state rex tillerson speaking there in virginia You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Twice Tillerson invoked the biblical passage in his address. Robin, there's no way he's not talking about the president here, is it?
2: Well, you may say that. He didn't say that, did he? I mean, he said, you can complete the list. What was it? China, Iran, North Korea, you can complete the list. I mean, what is it about this guy? Mm -hmm. He's not going to get another job in the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't he say what he means? Why doesn't he say, President Trump is a liar? I have sat with him. I know he's a liar. He is unfit for office. If that's what he means, why doesn't he say? He had a fantastic opportunity Mm -hmm. to say it loud and clear, and he ducked it. There's one other thing, Daniel. He said... He was giving advice to these students, wasn't Mm -hmm. he, as they graduate. Look for employers who set high standards for ethical conduct. Why doesn't he take his own advice? Why did he take a job in the Trump administration, if that's what he believes? I can't take this man seriously.
0: Knowing what it might come to as well. Uh, Well, then, uh, um, Carlo, why wouldn't Rex Tillerson speak out? Is there any reason not to? He did deny calling Trump a moron in past, but he was fired in a tweet and consistently undermined.
3: Why wouldn't he say something now? Well, I think that uh, there might be something about um, his efforts to be diplomatic publicly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not sure we can impute anything into his uh, unwillingness to speak out now, but it doesn't make any difference because the New York Times spoke for him. What I found fascinating (laughs) about this uh, piece uh, was that, uh, or the New York Times coverage of the piece, was that they simply did the interpretive read for all of us, filling uh, filling in all the uh, silences and the missed opportunities. Um, and a- as a result, it's, it, we have to ask ourselves why is this speech um, so important or meaningful at this moment? Uh, and it is perhaps another. Um, way for opponents of the president to um, to demonstrate what to make the case publicly that he's unfit for office, mm-hmm. um, even though, obviously, some of the people who are who were at one point supporters of him and who did not fare very well in the administration are um, you know, are unwilling to actually put the pressure on him himself. The Mm. other
2: thing which I think is interesting about it is that like all of these speeches, it's not actually going to make any difference to how people feel Mm -hmm. about President Trump. The people who love President Trump will still love him, regardless of anything that Rex Tillerson says. Uh, And the people who have loathed President Trump from the moment he sought high office, will continue to loathe Mm -hmm. him. Um, You know, Rex Tillerson is now trying to play the diplomat. He is, I think, by common consent, one was one of the worst secretaries of state the United States has (laughs) ever had. It's a bit late for him to start trying to be the, the the statesman. Sure.
3: Yeah, and just to add to that, what's fascinating about the the this kind of commitment to uh, this statement about and commitment to diplomacy is that in fact what you have now is a Tillerson who is pro diplomacy, uh, but actually was anti Department of State. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is the and of course this I think if there's one thing that's characteristic of the Trump administration, it's its capacity to uh, produce these political inversions. Because now it's Mike Pompeo who is a far more loyal supporter of the president. Far closer to the president, who is going to lift the hiring freeze mm-hmm. and provide all of these diplomatic missions with the funding. Uh, and so it, it doesn't even make sense for Tillerson. This, these statements for Tillerson don't even make sense on the face of it in terms of what he was able to accomplish at state. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tillerson also
0: said the strength of America is in its allies, as we heard in the clip there, China, Russia, Iran, and the others. And it's why they lag behind America, he said. But he warned of damaging relations with Europe. Is Trump causing serious harm on that file trade,
2: tariffs, the Iran deal, climate... Well, let's just take the Iran deal. Certainly he Mm -hmm. is. I mean, there are a great number of European companies who, unless they can find some way around it, are going to be seriously damaged by Trump's ripping up of the Iran deal because of his insistence that sanctions are going to be reapplied. But there's something else as well. He is at grave risk of uh, losing his allies in East Asia, uh, Japan, uh, even possibly South Korea, because if he does do a deal with North Korea, which involves only its abandoning of a long-range ballistic missile programme he retains the possibility of attacking his near neighbors, then America's traditional allies in the region aren't going to be very happy with that either. Mm-hmm. I just wanted
0: to, to go back to some of the things uh, Tillerson was saying and, you know, the trust of politicians and that there should be truth. You said Trump's not going to be harmed at all by these comments and his base will continue to stick with him. But how much is it the role of, of politics or even the media then to, to, to set the facts straight in America and what's going on right now?
3: I think it, I think it's very important. I think people and not simply uh, politicians and people in the media, but everybody has a responsibility if we want to talk about a little bit be a little bit more abstract about what democracy' is all about mm-hmm. uh, However, the problem I think in the media is that people take uh, or journalists or producers take um, the uh, the appearance of fault or the appearance of some type of mistake as uh, instantaneous uh, an instantaneous news story and so what we get a lot of particularly in the in um, the talk shows and a lot of the coverage of uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders mm-hmm. is about how uh, she was caught in a lie or that some somehow things were inconsistent but in fact politics is uh, I'm, I'm, obviously I'm not uh, trying to make an excuse for uh, Sanders some of the things that Sanders says but uh, politics is incredibly messy and people should be focused on things that actually matter. This is a very, um, a very earnest thing to say. But things that actually matter, and in many cases, these tiny little person, uh, personnel uh, blips or disputes or, or uh, le- things that are leaked about. Uh, conflicts within the White House that can't be substantiated, that in fact is not news in my mind. Mm -hmm. What gets me about people like Rex Tillerson is that they join the administration, the
2: so-called adults in the room, uh, on the argument that they will be able to somehow stop Trump doing the worst things. They'll be the sensible people while he's the madman. There's no evidence that they had any success at all Mm -hmm. and one by one they have first been frozen out and then thrown out and Rex Tillerson is the prime example of a man who had very substantial Substantial achievements, one can argue about his corporate record, but nevertheless, he was a man who had achieved a great deal in his commercial life, goes into the administration, is a total disaster. He now has an opportunity to tell it like it is, Mm -hmm. and he ducked. He did, duck,
0: indeed. Uh, he's been sort of in the hiding uh, a little bit and he agreed to do this commencement speech while he was still in office. And, and so he, he carried through and, he, and he, did the, he did the speech. But is there any way he's uh, he was waiting for the right moment? And I don't think this is yeah. a
2: speech he would have yeah. given if he was still in office, True. by yeah. the way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he rewrote it. Yeah. So he,
0: he had a chance to, to go on the offensive, but he didn't. Was he waiting for the right moment to say something to, to change his career path then?
3: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, Mm -hmm. he certainly sounds far more statesmanly, uh, perhaps even than he did uh, when he was Secretary of State. Uh, And I think that I, I have no idea what his... Future holes, but there may be a little, uh, a little bit of trying to uh, resituate himself or to try again. If we think about the way in which the New York Times jumped on this uh, speech, uh, if he can bring himself into a more rehabilitate his reputation, let's say, Mm -hmm. uh, by making fairly vague and. Uh, general statements about democracy and the American way, then uh, it seems to there's no there's no harm to it. People at his
2: stage of his career, I think, care about what they, one day, the obituaries will say about them. <laughs> and I'm reminded of what Churchill is once reputed to have said when he told a friend that he knew history would be kind to him. And when he was asked how he could be so sure, he said, because I shall write it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we shall see
0: what what uh, the, the history books will write about Rex Tillerson. And uh, I want to flip over to Malaysia now, where a quick summary of the nation's politics Reads like a fanciful episode of House of Cards. In 99, Anwar Ibrahim was jailed on charges of corruption and sodomy, which many saw as politically motivated. Now, the 92 year old former prime minister, Mahathir Mohammed, has emerged from retirement and, in a stunning electoral upset, won a second run at the nation's top job. Mohammed switched parties as well, taking on his former protege, Najib Razak, who's been en- embroiled in a multi billion dollar corruption scandal. He's now ordered the release of Ibrahim him, his former rival, if you're following all this. Carlo, is it an extraordinary turn of events that we've seen over the past few days, two political heavyweights, back from the dead and back on the top of the political scene in Malaysia, should we have seen this coming?
3: Uh, no, I think a lot of people missed it. And uh, what's fascinating is that certain things have changed drastically. Obviously, the after 61 years in power, the ruling um, Barisan Nationale coalition uh, and, and the uh, the party that Najib belonged to, UMNO, is what it's referred to as uh, by its acronym. Uh, these, um, the fact that it lost an election in a system which was geared toward returning the government to power, that is uh, completely historical and was uh, took many people by surprise. Mm-hmm. But the fascinating thing about Malaysian politics is that what we don't see change is we don't have a kind of democratic moment in which all of the autocratic connections and all of the um, oligarchic interests somehow fade away because of this election result. Mm -hmm. And that's the fascinating thing is that, and I think what we'll see in the next uh, coming weeks, is that uh, this was an opposition, the opposition coalition in this case, was an opposition that was never very coherent. Always torn apart by uh, all, uh, highly personalistic uh, tensions, uh, and then once you have Mahathir switch sides and create its, his own opposition party, become part of the coalition, you now have, as you stated uh, uh, very well, you now have enemies working together, mm-hmm. and uh, it's not very long before uh, the government fails to to work as a as a coherent unit. The thing uh, that I like to um, uh, remind people is that. Autocratic environments, autocratic states produce autocratic results. And just because you have an election does not necessarily mean that the relations between politicians uh, or even the relationship between the state and society or between the government and its people uh, will become any less autocratic. Uh,
0: Mohammed's back in power. Ibrahim is in a place once again, as he was some twenty years ago, to, to perhaps take over the leadership of the country. And but Mohammed has said he can't go on forever uh, at his age, and that he would back um, he would back you know his now successor uh, Ibrahim if that's what the party wanted. Does he have a job to do at his age now, or is it just a case
2: of waiting for the next leader? I try very hard to keep up with Malaysian politics and I'm not sure I succeed. I tried to follow your summary at the top there and I kind of got lost after the third reference to Anwar Ibrahim. Look, um, normally when people vote a government out of office it's because they want a change. Mm -hmm. They want somebody else to have a go. I have a lot of sympathy for the voters of Malaysia because they didn't really have an alternative to go to. The only alternative they had was was the guy who'd already been there. Mm -hmm. There is so much corruption in Malaysian politics. Uh, There is so much evidence of very serious deep-seated corruption on all sides and it seems to me that Malaysian voters were stuck between a rock and a hard place. They didn't like who was in power so they threw him out, what they've got. Is the guy who used to be in power, uh, whether they'll get anything better, mm-hmm. who, can, who knows? Yeah. Anwar Ibrahim
0: says a priority is ending the political grip on the country's justice system now and that he truly knows the value of freedom having been released from jail again. Uh, why has he been
3: released and where does his future lie? What's in the cards for him, Carla? Well, I think that at some point he will become prime minister. The question is, Uh, What is the process and how long will it take? Uh, Mahathir has been clear about the fact that uh, Anwar has to become prime minister through legal means. Mm -hmm. This means that that he's going to have to become a member of parliament. So there might be time before a by-election. Of course, in 2014, when he was free from uh, prison and tried to become a um, uh, chief minister of the, uh, excuse me, when he tried to become a member of parliament, he did so in a way which was itself highly autocratic. So Anwar is a, I think we forget that uh, back in the 1990s and early 2000s, Anwar was seen uh, by the international community as a voice for democracy and moderate Islam. Mm -hmm. And much of that um, depiction and that aura or reputation is not precisely uh, in practice um, domestically. Uh, his PKR party, the party that, he, um, that his uh, wife is, the pre- is, excuse me, that his wife comes from, uh, that he set up, is um, is still a highly oligarchic party, mm-hmm. uh, and that is reflective of all of the major parties in in uh, Malaysian politics. And so, I think that he, I, I certainly think that he has a future. Who knows uh, what Mahathir's future is? He himself. Uh, joked, I think it was the day after the election that they would be calling, I can't remember what it was, they would be calling a meeting of the cabinet or a meeting of uh, advisors at 5 p.m. the next day. And he he joked, if I'm still alive, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least he has good spirit
0: no matter what happens. Yeah. Um, Robin, Malaysians voted in record numbers here. Is, is all
2: the scandal and all the headlines uh, good for democracy in the end somehow? I admire the resilience of Malaysian voters. I admire the fact that they did go out to vote. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can compare it to, example, the elections in Iraq. Uh, very different, of course, but nevertheless there, the disillusion with the democratic process is so deep that very few people went out to vote, relatively speaking. Uh, Malaysian voters, to my mind, deserve better than they're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, Anwar, yes, has been in jail for a long time. He's shown remarkable resilience and courage. Is he a new broom? No, frankly he's not, and I suspect that's what Malaysians want more than anything else.
0: You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bates, Robin Lustig, and Carlo Panera. Coming up next are some summits a little more than a thumping bore. and if you're fresh out of Habiki whiskey, we've got some bad news for you. Stay tuned.
2: Pack your bags and join us on a global tour through exciting and inspiring cities. From Madrid to Miami, Tokyo to Toronto, we've created travel guides that will help you get the best out of a city, no matter how short your stay. We'll whirl you around some of our favourite architectural spots, top cultural haunts, and then point you in the direction of a well-earned drink from a little-known cocktail bar. We've also scouted the prettiest running routes, the most design-savvy shops, and the best hotels to comfortably rest your head. View our full range of travel guides at monocle.com or visit any good bookstore and plan your next escape today. Cities are fun. Let's explore.
0: You are listening to Midori House. I'm Daniel Bates. Still with me, Carlo Benura and Robin Lustig. APEC, BRICS, EEC, SARC, G7, G8, the list goes on. What do they have in common? Well, they're all summits that, with each passing occasion, leave some questioning their relevance. Those questions perhaps reach their peak during the World Economic Forum in Davos, an event that sees world leaders apparently making big-ticket decisions while rubbing shoulders with the likes of Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, is it time someone took a big red pen to the list of uh, world
2: summits, Robin? Uh, Well, as somebody who has covered more summits than is good for anybody's health, (laughs) uh, European Union summits, NATO summits, uh, Commonwealth summits, the worst of them all, Mm -hmm. which I still wake up screaming (laughs) in the night about, is the climate change summit in Copenhagen when I think there were something like 140 delegations. I mean, summits are gruesome, they are grim, but I don't think they're entirely without value. They do two things. First of all, they do give heads of state and heads of government an opportunity to whisper in corridors. What happens in the plenaries is totally irrelevant, it seems to me. They sit around a table and they give prepared speeches. Useless. But when they do have their little so-called bilaterals one-to-one, or sometimes one-to-three. That can be useful. The other use of summits is that it gives governments a deadline by which they have to have done something. They know that there is a summit coming up, they know they will have to issue a declaration and that it will be expected that this declaration contains some promises, some pledges, and they have to do something about it. Climate change policies were influenced by summits. Uh, The euro, the common currency of the European Union, was agreed at a European summit meeting. I remember it well, awfully. (laughs) Um, But but, they are not entirely without use. But yes, there could be a lot fewer of them. Carlo, besides all the awkward family
0: photos and handshakes, does, uh, does anything get done?
3: Uh, yeah on the face of the things that get done at summits uh, the question is whether or not and I think the, the point of raising the question to some degree is whether or not all of that could have been done at the ministerial level mm-hmm. or uh, you know uh, back in capitals without bringing people together uh, I think what, what is fascinating about summits that some summits that uh, sometimes um, someone from a particular audience might not uh, understand is that and but by, by that I mean a national audience somewhere somewhere in the world might not understand is that if you have a very large international summit, uh, the politics of that summit in your country may not be the same as the politics of the summits uh, elsewhere. And so, uh, so for instance, for some of the smaller countries like let's say Malaysia or any of the Southeast Asian nations, uh, uh, and including Singapore, when when they attend a, a major summit, uh, oftentimes the the press coverage is either far more intense uh, or particularly if the media is supportive of the. Of the government is linked somehow to the Mm -hmm. government, you know. There's fairly elaborate uh, coverage, and actually, participation by a smaller country in these summits may actually, uh, you know, play very, very well in in local presses. In Southeast Asia, you have the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which itself is a regional body. It doesn't. it doesn't do much uh, as a regional body. But one thing it does very, very well is produce endless amounts of ministerial conferences and summits. Uh, and to be honest, it has it has an entire calendar of uh, summits uh, lined up every single year. And at some point, uh, more recently, I think with the Obama administration, you know, U.S. Uh, presidencies and U.S. administrations have been taking these summits seriously. Mm-hmm. I think summits are kind of part of the uh, our political modernity. And um, uh, the longer they're around, the more people uh, respect them. Uh, Margaret Thatcher
2: was said to absolutely loathe summits <laughs> with a passion for two reasons. <laughs> First of all, because it meant she had to talk to a lot of foreigners, which she wasn't very keen on. And secondly, because the whole point of a summit is that you compromise and you do deals. Mm-hmm. And that was something she hated as well. And she was once, a- once asked what it felt like to be in a European Union summit where it was always one against the rest. And how did she feel about that? And she said, sorry for the rest. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> well, we've said that some things get done and
0: often uh, perhaps it's diplomats behind the scene and, and leaders from smaller countries uh, like to be seen with the big rock star politicians and such. But uh, is there a summit that you would keep? You mentioned a long history of com- covering summits. Uh, is there any underrated summit or, or one that really is effective?
2: Oh, no. I mean, the, the, all the summits I can remember, I, I remember with, with a shiver and and, and, and and the stuff of nightmares. As I say, the Copenhagen one was very much definitely the worst. Mm-hmm. European Union summits used to be a sort of traveling circus. They all used to be held in the capital of the country which held the rotating presidents of the EU at that particular moment. And that was absolutely grim. Now at least they're all held in Brussels so it's all in the same place. But no I mean as a reporter on the outside summits are absolutely dreadful. I'm told by people who sit on the inside that they're pretty dreadful there as well. (laughs) But uh, as I say just occasionally something Mm. does get done. Carlo maybe let's flip that or I'll I'll give you a wild,
0: wild card question is there a summit you would keep or a summit you would scrap? Uh,
3: no, I don't have any. I'm not personally attached to any okay. summits. But uh, <laughs> I, the one point I want to make is that uh, what's what's interesting to me is that if you look back at the WTO protests, uh, that, the WTO protests that took place in Seattle, mm-hmm. there was an effort after that con- uh, that um, summit uh, to try to um, rework who are the attendees to the summits, uh, how um, – how open are they? What type of, you know, to use this uh, highly technocratic language of shareholders, what shareholders take part? And you had new summits emerge like the social economic forums. Uh, and what what I find fascinating is that the, that type of tinkering to the model of the summit really hasn't had that much effect. Like, I'm not sure that we have any that uh, developing countries uh, or poor countries, uh, those um, uh, groups that are affiliated with. Uh, international civil society movements or non-governmental organizations that they have any more say in summits now than they did back uh, when people took to the streets for the first round of protests. And and, um, the same is true with the protests as well. We now have summit protests, summit protests, and I'm not sure that that uh, model works either. It
2: it does give reporters something else to write about. (laughs) Sure. Uh, My first
0: week as a reporter was uh, the G20 summit in downtown Mm -hmm. Toronto, and the placement of that was called into huge
2: question because it was just police beating on protesters. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, sometimes when you have a kind of alternative summit by some of these social mm-hmm. groups and NGOs, reporters do go along to them, and it does open up the discussion just a little. Gives an to use the phrase an alternative narrative, which isn't entirely without without use. Finally, tonight, if you're just sitting down to a well
0: earned whiskey highball, well. I hope it wasn't your last drop of Habiki. Suntory, the company behind some of the world's most popular Japanese whiskeys, has announced it's putting two of its most popular products on hold. Due to overwhelming demand, shipments of Habiki 17-year-old, and Yakushu, 12-year-old, will be stopped while supplies are replenished. So, uh, Carlo, why don't they just make more?
3: Well, uh, whiskey takes a long time to make. Uh, and, and I think in the, um, uh, in the whiskey industry, this is perhaps the worst case scenario you could possibly um, imagine. Uh, what I want to know really is why has the demand spiked so so <laughs> so mm. high so quickly? To me, that's the real un- untold part of this uh, problem. What, here. Is, what it about is going the on? world it's dri-
2: driving people to drink, <laughs> as if you need yeah, us. Uh, exactly. Have we
0: perhaps have we become uh, too demanding when it comes to luxury
2: spirits? No, we. we, just, we just, I mean, it, 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 it's absurd, isn't it? I mean, this is a company whose job is to produce whiskey, and they didn't. Mm-hmm. Know notice that more and more people wanted to buy their product if they produce something that says it's 17 year old whiskey then it's not rocket science to work out that they need 17 years to make it Mm. if the suppliers are rolling out of the door quicker than they can make it then there's something wrong with the way they're running their business I mean it is appalling it's a bit like when uh, a a famous fried chicken business here in the UK ran out of chicken Mm -hmm. Um, they have one job and that's to provide chicken to consumers (laughs) a whiskey distiller has one job and that's to provide whiskey and they Uh, I mean,
0: I guess it does create market demand in a sense. I know uh, distilleries in Scotland probably have the same issue and are stocking up barrels and and having to to do blends and different things to to keep the brand out there. Suntory says it's committed to producing whiskey in Japan. Uh, How important uh, to the sales is the fact that it's Japanese then?
3: Uh, Well, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I have to say that, uh, and perhaps this shows my lack of sophistication as a whiskey drinker, but I I wasn't aware that uh, there was such good whiskey coming out of Mm -hmm. Japan. And uh, perhaps this story will actually, you know, have the opposite effect, which is increased demand even further because people want to see what Japanese whiskey is all about. I was really shocked the first time I went around the duty-free at Tokyo Airport to see how many brands of Japanese
2: whiskey there were, of which I was totally unaware. You know, I live in a country which lives on Scotch whiskey and very good it is too. Uh, But, uh, yeah, there is a lot of Japanese whiskey and there are a lot of Japanese whiskey drinkers and I think Japanese consumers have learnt to enjoy Japanese whisky. Uh, I'm not sure a lot of Scotsmen and women would mm-hmm. drink Japanese whisky. It would be virtually a treacherous thing to do, I suspect. But nevertheless, there is a demand and they can't fulfil it. Bad Business, Well, perhaps it's good for marketing in the end. Uh, who
0: knows? It's, it may make it more valuable. There's a there's a huge whiskey auction tomorrow in Hong Kong. A 1926 uh, McAllen will go for some $500,000. So, not made in Japan. Not made in Japan, though, no, right? <laughs> so, so maybe the Japanese aspire, uh, you know, to have
3: these sought-after whiskeys, and will this help them at all, Carlo? Uh, you mean the uh, the increase in the value or yeah. the auction? Uh, yeah, I'm sure it. I'm sure it um, will have a huge effect on the desirability of uh, Japanese whiskey, but. Uh I think I, I, what I want to see, just get to get back to the example of Scotland. What I want to see is the Scottish uh, sake come out that we've never heard yeah,
2: anything about. There that. there you go. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's go. <laughs>
3: Turn for the it. tables
0: once and for all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, pour us all a stiff drink, please. Santori Times. That brings us to the end of today's show. Robin Lustig, Carlo Benura. Good fun. Thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House, gentlemen. Today's show produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Amber Roberts, our studio manager. Christy Evans more music next then at 1900 hours it's The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily later 2200 London time Midori House back at the same time tomorrow I'll be a guest I think that is 1800 London time I am Daniel Bates goodbye and thank you for listening